Hey everybody, it's Andrew Sheps and welcome to episode four of Andrew Talks to Awesome People. This week's episode is with Ken Scott, one of the faces on the Mount Rushmore of recording. Absolutely, no question about it. Uh, he's very well known for all of his work with the Beatles and Bowie and Supertramp and Lou Reed and Elton John and this podcast is an absolute joy. I'm really, really happy to have had the opportunity to talk to Ken. Two hours long, we're starting to hit our stride here, and as always, I will apologize for the audio quality. This is a little bit better than last week's episode, uh, but it's going to take until about episode 30 before things really get cleaned up, so I do apologize for that. Uh, this is the recording straight off of the webcast, so enjoy. Ken Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Andrew, thank you so much for having me on. Well, of course, of course. So, um... I want to just get right to it because there's just so much to talk about that is indeed awesome. So if you don't mind, I think the easiest thing to do is we'll just kind of go through your career. And there's some stuff, I mean, if people don't know anything about your career, then everything we're going to say is new anyway. But I thought that there's some things that are relatively well-known and then there are things that are slightly not as well-known. And I want to connect the dots on a couple of things. If that's okay. cool. But we should start with the fact that you started at Abbey Road in 1964, right? Actually, I, I started at EMI Recording Studios in 1964, which is what it was back then. It, it didn't, I'd left by the time it actually became Abbey Road. Okay, there you go. So I always I'm, have to get that right. <laughs> we're, we're one minute 19, that's the fastest group <laughs> of <laughs> one So you came in. Um, and then the the typical progression in EMI with, and then later Abbey Road was you started as an assistant engineer. Is that the first position we get? Or you started in the tech shop? No, started in the tape library. Tape library. Okay. The, Do you want to just the reason that they did that was so you could learn what went on in the studio because back then this was uh, January nineteen sixty four. Back then, no one knew what what went on in studios. And so they wanted the, the newcomer to learn what a mastering engineer was, although back then we were called cutters, uh, a cutting engineer. Then uh, what, you learn the tape library, you learn what happens in the studios, the editors, all of the different areas that were, that were contained in that building. You had to learn. So they, they thought the best bet, best bet is the tape library where you'd be running around getting tapes from one place to another. So you gradually learn what, what happened and what all the people did. Right, and you couldn't do too much damage. Precisely. So then what exactly was the progression? So it's tape library, then... Button pusher. Button pusher, tape op. Yeah. An engineer-ish, mm, right? Yeah. All we did was push buttons. Okay. That's how we got the name. It would be, the engineer would say, okay, record. We'd hit the two buttons. Okay, stop. We'd stop. <laughs> and that, that was it. Because back then, even... The studio setup wasn't done by the engineer. It was done by the, the amp room guys, the tech guys. They would put the mics out in basically the, the way you, the engineer wanted them placed. And then the engineer would go down and do the final placement. Right, so right. We, we, we did nothing. We just pushed buttons. All right. And so once you were really good at pushing buttons, where'd you go? Next was mastering. Was mastering. Now, I want to talk about mastering for a bit because oh, um, that's a touchy well, subject for me. <laughs> is it? Is it? Oh, no, no. I don't want to talk about mastering engineers at all. What I want to talk no. about is your time in the mastering room at EMI at that point, because unless I've got this wrong, 
not only were you cutting stuff that was contracted to be cut because of the studios and the label, but you're also cutting American catalog, including yeah. Motown at that point, yes. right? Yes. So you're getting master tapes from America. No, oh. you're we, we you would get the forty. We'd get the forty-five. <laughs> tape, and then master it. Wow. The, the problem was customs tapes. They would hold on to for a while. Right. Whereas we could get the the singles through quickly. That's so funny. And would you would you re cure anything at all, or pretty much flat transfers just back onto well, the label? We would all we would always try and cut it as loud as the American one. We never could. Right. That was that was one of the big bones of contention at Abbey Road for 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 us youngsters, if you like, just trying to match the the American uh, cutting. We couldn't. Now. Because I seem, and I'm probably getting this wrong, but I seem to remember Paul McCartney talking at one point about the low end of the American Motown records. And that that's what he was chasing a lot of times in the studio. Yeah. But wasn't he hearing your transferred 45 recut onto the English issue of the 45 at that point anyway? Oh, yes. So he's but hearing... You have, to, you have to remember, you have to remember that a lot of the stuff that they had were the American copies. And if it's louder you automatically think that there's more of things on it. Right, right. Directly. So it could very well have been that, because initially, coming from Liverpool, the way they heard most of the rock and roll and the music they listened to was sailors bringing it in off the, the ships, because you couldn't buy many imports, if any, import records uh, right. at that point. So that they, living in Liverpool, which was a huge port at that point, uh, they were getting stuff from, from sailors bringing it in. Right, and and just to sort of complete that picture, what was radio at that time? Because I mean, in the States, radio was always commercial, really. So there were lots of stations and everything getting played, but that was not the case in the UK. We, we had uh, three, st three or four stations. I didn't go through them. We had uh, the light program, which was the, the that was the general one for people to listen to. It, it, and it's called the light program because that's basically what it had. But that was the only uh, station that would play anything that us kids would like. And that was generally a one hour program every Saturday night at 11 o'clock, I think it was called Pick of the Pops. Wow. Um, th then you had the, the third program, which was, they thought that they were the epitome of class. <laughs> it, it, they, they would have the Shakespeare on, they'd have opera, they'd have the classical music. Then you had uh, the home service. That was more sort of detective dramas. They'd have dance bands on it, that kind of thing. So that was the middle of the road one. But most of the stuff we listened to was the light program. And most of what we had to listen to was utter crap. We had right. it. It wasn't our music at all. But there is an interesting thing that I feel with regard to that. that what has happened these days so much is that if you're into a certain genre of music that you tend to only listen to that so what, what is happening is that the, the new up-and-coming acts are regurgitating the old acts doing exactly the same kind of thing now what we heard and what led to a lot of the stuff during the the late 60s and early 70s we were hearing all we were hearing classical we were hearing dance band we were hearing all of this kind of stuff we didn't like it but it somehow it sticks up there and so yeah. at some point when we're looking for something different, we'll suddenly think of, well, help, let's try something classical. Hence, yesterday with McCartney going yeah. to the and saying that, can we try something like that? Which was, 
unheard of up to that point and uh we would pick and choose bits and pieces there's a on moon age daydream uh, a bowie song the the solo on that comes from the b-side of uh alley oop which was a, a big hit and it was a baritone and a flute david loved the, the the sound of these two together playing this this line so when it came to the solo he said that's what i want to try and emulate we did it with a baritone and a recorder right it right. the same kind of thing and it's that yeah. from other sources which doesn't happen these days anywhere near as much no but i mean the uk sort of kept that alive I mean, because i was going to say until recently but it's probably been 20 years but 20 years ago radio one still had a bizarrely eclectic playlist yeah they kind of whatever was popular they were going to play it because they wanted people to listen it didn't matter about the genre so much now that's not the case at all but that lasted a lot longer here, I think, than it did other places. Now, just um, really quickly, so famously, the UK also had pirate radio yes. off of ships just off the coast broadcasting. But that was that in the early 60s, or was that a little bit later? Was um, that sort of uh, that, would, that was late 60s. Right, okay. So you had it, radio programs. Sorry. It, it changed to they, they, uh, the BBC changed. They realized that they had to try and compete with the pirate radio stations. And so they changed and opened up, I think it was Radio 1. It must have been 68 because George Martin did the uh, the call music for it, the, 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 what was played right from the beginning of the, the whole shebang. And right. I remember we were doing the White Album and uh, when that happened, so that would have been 68. Wow. Which is, you know, it's only four years later, but that's a... It's a long time when yeah. you consider that's most of the Beatles catalog coming out. That's yeah, incredible. So very famously, you assisted on some um, some Beatles records right away. But I wanted to just briefly talk about the other engineers that were there. Because there, I mean, obviously, there's the big three working on the Beatles records, which is you, Jeff, and Norman Smith. And then Malcolm Addy was also there when you first came. Did he work on any of the Beatles records or was he doing other stuff yeah, at that point? He may have done like a, uh, an overdub where Norman couldn't make it, that kind of right. thing. He, Pete Vince, they, they all did a little, but and, uh, Pete Bound did. But none of them, the old timers, did not like working with the Beatles because they were used to the 10 till 1, 2.30 to 5.30, 7 to 10 sessions, and they'd get home at a, by 11 o'clock at night. Beatles, you could go till six or seven o'clock in the morning, and they hated that kind of thing, which is why we complete amateurs at the point, Jeff and myself, were, were put on them, because we were youngsters. We had no family to get home to, and hey, we, we were working on the band that gave us the best pool line ever. Hey, I worked with the Beatles. <laughs> never, never actually worked for me, but I tried. Well, it's the fact <laughs> you can say it and not be lying is amazing. Yeah, I know. I think that's the thing. I don't think anyone ever believed it. So we could spend the next, well, 45 weeks talking about just the work with the Beatles, but I'd really like to touch on a few of the other artists that you work with. So one, um, Peter Sellers, who's uh, yeah. just, I mean, a genius. And so was this on the comedy records that, that yes. George Martin was doing? Right. Yeah. Um, my first introduction to that is whilst I was in the tape library. Uh, I, I wore shoes that had leather bottoms, so when uh, I made a lot of noise when I walked. 
<laughs> George Martin had obviously noticed that because there was one point they were doing something. It was when they were doing the, he was doing covers of uh, Beatles songs, comedic versions of Beatles songs. And there was one bit where they wanted someone walking along going into a church. So he came up, got me, and I had to walk along the corridor, clumping my shoes, and they recorded that. So that was my first oh, that's a great introduction. <laughs> but then I, I also got to uh, assist on a couple of sessions, once again, whilst do, doing uh, primarily covers of, of Beatles songs. But uh, a very strange man. Uh, it, it's, I, I think because he played so many different characters, he didn't know who he was, and he would be swapping between characters during conversations. Right, right. It was very, yeah. That's what kind I of Kind of Robin Williams-ish in that way, I guess. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Huh. Wow. Strange. Um, okay, another one. Now, this is one. It's listed when you read stuff about you, but then when you look for album credits, you don't find your name, which isn't unusual for no, all of us. But, um, but which uh, Pink Floyd sessions did you work on? Okay, I did the last single with Sid, which was Paintbox and Apples and Oranges. Wow, yeah. Great song. And then, then I did... The, I only remember doing one track on the next album, the first one with, with Gilmore, which was Corporal Clegg. But apparently there is paperwork that shows I did a lot more on that album than just that. <laughs> but, uh, I don't remember it. Nothing to do with substances, just Absolutely no, it's not. Believe me, <laughs> it's not. I just, the, yeah, the, the culture in that studio at that time is really amazing. I mean, there's so many stories. I mean, I know a couple from sort of later, like 70, 71, of the cross-pollination between um, Pink Floyd and Roy Harper because they're down the hall and so they sing on each other's records and just, it's a really amazing collaborative experience being in a multi-room facility. But I would imagine being in that particular facility, especially while the Beatles were there, everybody must have wanted to work with the Beatles or get in the room and say hi or something. So there had to have been an incredible atmosphere of just like everything you were doing was cool. It, yeah. But uh, nobody came by. Very really? few, very few I, I won't say nobody, but very few people came by most of the time. Uh, it, it, it was working. One, I think the reason that I got the gig at, at uh, EMI was within the questioning during my interview. Like they, they, the Beatles were my favorite band. They were, it was before they went to the States, like three weeks before they went to the States. So they hadn't broken that market yet, but everywhere else they were huge. Uh, but something in the midst of the interview, one of the guys interviewing me said, uh, who is your favorite band? And I, I tell the story that something deep within me, way down there said, do not say the Beatles. <laughs> so I said to Dave Clark five. Which is not a bad choice. Well, they, they looked at each other and, and said, well, why the Dave Clark Five? And once again, I listened to that deep down voice and it told me to say along the lines of, I'm sure it wasn't quite this way, but it's, well, I think the addition of the keyboard and the sax gives them a totally different sound from the usual two guitar, bass and drum band. <laughs> now, the, the whole point was that they wanted someone that was interested in sound. They didn't want someone that would be going, trying to take photographs, getting autographs they didn't they didn't want a fanboy they wanted someone interested in sound and i think right i got the gig oh that's brilliant that well your deep down voice is a, that's oh, a good I, voice it's kept me going for through the last 50 years believe me 
So one really quick Beatles thing, um, just in terms of the sort of people they were as they're approaching this absolute gigantic stardom, because as you mentioned, they were about to go to the States and at that point it was supernova. But my wife who's sitting next to me was saying that they actually played a gig in Worcester which is not a town that anybody plays. You play Birmingham and then you skip everything around it and go play Bristol. Yeah. But they played it in Worcester after they had already exploded because it was booked. And yeah. they were like, well, we're going to keep our, our word yeah. and go play. But they were one of the hardest working bands I've ever come across. Because it would be playing gigs in places like that across the country. On their days off, they'd be at EMI recording, then immediately out on the road again. One of the reasons, there are two reasons that the Beatles were as good as they were. One, obviously, is the talent of all four of them. All of them incredible in what they did. But the other one is the work ethic. I think that whole thing of being in uh, Hamburg and playing three shows a night, six days a week, yeah. it, it made them a really great tight band. And that that how many bands would do that these days? No, it's too much work. Yes, you know, you stay home and work on a record in your living room instead. Well, yeah. And you're, you're lucky if they'll play a, a gig the day after playing a gig. Normally it's, oh, we're going to have at least one or two days off. We've got to rest our voices and that kind of thing. But, so. Yeah, there's a bunch of three sets. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Um, all right, we're going to... We're just going to skip a lot. If there's anything you want to stop and talk about, please just stop me and say, well, this is an amazing story. So the last one in sort of the, the EMI days I wanted to ask about was Jeff Beck. Yes. Just basically, what what because on, so we've got playlists from you, Inspiration and Perspiration playlists, yes. which are just ridiculous, both playlists. There were a couple things I had to take some liberties on because I didn't know like which recording of the four seasons. So I oh, put any. in... Anyway, yeah. it's, it's the melodies that oh, get me. And that's really strangely, there is a gorgeous, gorgeous song from Skunk and Nancy on that list, yes. um, Squander. Yes. But the studio version of it is not on Spotify, so there must be some sort of um, licensing thing. But there's a live version that's pretty much that arrangement, and it's pretty stellar. But then also... I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know about Spotify because I will not submit to any of those. Well, good on you. But uh, unfortunately, we'll be sharing a link to Spotify with these. Um, okay. And then the other one, which is actually difficult to find, um, the studio version of Jeff Beck's A Day in Life was not on there. The album was there, but that song was not there. Not so there's sure. a live version of it. But I wanted to just, we don't even have to talk about that song, but I'm just curious about working with Jeff Beck then. Well, it was such an amazing band. I, I, it was the, their first album. It was Jeff, it was Rod Stewart on vocals, it was Ronnie Wood on bass, and it, we had a blast, we had fun, it was great. I the one and only time in my, my life I had to record bagpipes and I had no idea how the hell to do it. What'd you use on the bagpipes? I'll oh, ask the one no idea, I can't remember. Prob probably a 67 because I tend yeah. to use those on everything, but... Uh, <laughs> And then, of course, we the the, the story we, we had Keith Moon come in and play Timps on Old Man River, and the the way the story goes is that uh, we finished around about eleven o'clock at night, and he had a Rolls Royce at the time that had this huge PA system built into it, so uh, and he had this microphone that he could turn on at any time, so 
he leaves. I'm at the top of the stairs watching as, as he's pulling out in his Rolls Royce, this little old lady, because St. John's Wood is very old money and, and just very sedate. Everyone's in bed by 10 o'clock. She wasn't. She was walking her little dog and she happened to step in front of the Rolls Royce just as he was about to pull out. He pulls out the mic, turns it on and starts screaming the most obscene language you can ever, ever imagine. That poor woman, he let it go for about 10 minutes. EMI <laughs> had more complaints about that than they ever had about uh, having to close down Abbey Road because of all the fans outside, uh, because the Beatles were recording. It, <laughs> It was amazing. Can I, I just, I have to rewind and restate the sentence that you just dropped in the middle of that. We had Keith Moon come in to play timpani on a Jeff Beck record on which song? Old Man River. Old Man River. I mean, those four things in one sentence is insane. <laughs> they were great times, what can I say? God, that, that's just nuts. So, okay, so you left, still EMI at this point in 1969 to move over to Trident, as far as I know. Okay, so I've got- about, Yeah, I think it was 69, yeah. So, but what was, I've got two questions about that. So the first thing is that apparently, and this is, you know, according to the internet, so who the hell knows if it's true, but Gus Dudgeon was one of, or the person who kind of suggested to you that you should do this. I'm wondering why, you hadn't worked with Elton at that point, had you? No, no, this, I, I worked because Gus was uh, an independent producer, one of the few around at that time, working in different studios. And he, he at uh, EMI, he, I worked with him on a band called The Locomotive. Uh, we did two singles. One was Rudy's In Love, and I think the other one was Mr. Armageddon. Uh, and I, I had been to Trident I, I, because when... Uh, the Beatles had finished recording Hey Jude. We'd attempted to do it at EMI, but a film crew coming in completely screwed the whole thing. They were booked in at Trident after that to try 8-track. So I went in the last day when they'd done a mix and was absolutely blown away by how amazing it sounded on, on the system in Trident. So I'd seen the studio, and then I had been fired at the very end of the White Album by the new manager at EMI. I got my gig back at EMI, but I knew the target was on my back and I wanted to leave on my own terms, not be fired again. So uh, I happened to ask Gus, where would you recommend? You've, been, you've seen most of them. And he right. said, well, Trident, because the engineer I normally work with, Barry Sheffield, who's one of the owners, wants to move over just to the management side. He wants to give up the engineering. And I'll need someone to, to work with me there went down, met with them and started. But the funny thing was, I never did actually work with Gus until a couple of years later. Uh, they, right. they put him together with the amazing Robert Jeff, uh, Robin Jeffrey Cable. Right. He did all of the early uh, album stuff. And uh, then once he had a car accident, that's when I actually got to start working with, with Gus. Right. Now, at that point, was there such a thing as an independent engineer or was pretty much everybody worked at a studio? Um, pretty much. I, I'm not sure about... I don't know about Glenn, how much he went around. Yeah, it seems like he worked in more places, but I, I'm, yeah. and I could be but I think he supposedly worked at one place. Because, like, Phil Brown was the same thing. Like, he worked at a place, but he would follow bands around to finish overdubs or whatever. So he'd work in a lot of places, but he was yeah. technically staff somewhere. Yeah, no, so I guess we were all staff. Yeah. 
All right, so the truck, Eric. Yes. That's Putin too, huh? He had his moments. <laughs> he had his moments. Well, so Elton John, we've already touched on that. A few records. You came in to finish uh, mixing, yes. right? Well, you see, right at the tail end of one. Yeah, they, uh, they had recorded Mammon Across the Water. And between the recording and the mixing, uh, Robin had had a really bad car accident. And uh, so they, they obviously couldn't wait for him to uh, get well again. And uh, so I was thrown in the deep end of, of mixing that, which I did. And it, it worked out perfectly, really, because after that, Elton wanted a completely different type of record, different sound. He wanted to use his, the, the band that he used on the road, uh, Nigel and Dee, and uh, also bring in the guitarist, David Johnston and do it outside of the country and give a, a bit more of a, as opposed to the, the, the classical pop kind of thing that had been before with the big orchestra, with all of Buckmaster's arrangements. Uh, he wanted something a bit more rock and roll and, and pop kind of thing with the band. Right. And so I, I, it was perfect for me doing that. So we did Honky uh, Chateau and Don't Shoot Me, I'm a piano player over in France. Now, there's, there's a great documentary in the classic album series about Hunky Chateau, so I, we don't have to go into too much detail on this, but the workflow on that record, uh, I'd just like you to say if this was really the way the whole record went, but it, from the way they show it, basically, Elton had a stack of Bernie's lyrics, he would pick one out in the morning, figure out, write the song on the piano while everybody's sort of finishing up breakfast, and by the end of the day, that song was basically done overdubs and nah, all not quite like that it, it, it was all quick like seeing rocket man being written in 10 minutes and it was exactly that bernie would go up early at night uh to his room uh to to write lyrics and he'd come down with sheets of paper he'd give them to elton whilst elton was having uh breakfast elton would go yeah i like that one no i don't like that don't like that oh, that's not bad and go through and he'd find some this one particular morning he, he picked up this sheet which was called rocket man and he went out to the piano and within 10 minutes he had the whole song that's just unbelievable and yeah but look re remember back then all records all albums were recorded in two weeks well almost all well <laughs> i know there was one band in particular that didn't yeah. quite do that we'll, we'll get to super in a minute but <laughs> i'm sorry Get to Super Tramp in a minute. Oh, I wasn't thinking. Sorry, I wasn't thinking there. I was thinking Beatles. Oh yeah, well. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I know what's coming. <laughs> nah, well, but but we should go from there to to Bowie, because that sure. if you want to just about the same time. That's the interesting thing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so you started by engineering on a record form, and then we're asked was asked to co-produce, yeah, right? Two, two albums. Uh, he recorded the the single Space Oddity with Barry Sheffield engineering and Gus producing. And Gus produced it because Tony Visconti hated the song and refused to do it. So, uh, so Gus produced it. It was a hit. So the record company, Mercury, then said, we want an album. So that was then when Tony came in and I engineered it along with Malcolm Toft. Uh, another one of the engineers at Trident. We did that. Then uh, it was a complete flop. But record companies 
if they signed talent, they believed in it and they gave him a second chance, do another album. And they started, uh, at, I can't remember what studio it was. It was another studio and it was Man Who Sold the World. And then they came to Trident, I did overdubs and then mixed that once again, complete and utter flop. And David took some time off. And in the midst of that time off, he, he came into attempt to produce a friend of his, a guy called Freddie Beretti, who became one of his uh, top clothes designers. And I had reached that point. I, I, I don't know if you've ever reached it when recording an act with a producer sitting by the side of you. You'll come up with a suggestion, a musical suggestion. I this way I always tell the story is when you come up to the guitar solo, I turn to the producer and I say, you know what would sound great underneath underneath this solo? And he says, What? I said, I heard of trumpeting elephants. <laughs> you think so? Yeah, I think it would work perfectly. Bring in the herd of trumpeting elephants, you record them, they go. If it works, it was his idea. If it doesn't work, it's yeah. Oh, I didn't think it would work. It's only Ken's idea anyway. But one gets fed up with that after a while and wants to actually be the one that it's my suggestion. I'll sink or swim from it, buy it, whatever. Uh, so I'd reached that point, interestingly enough, at the same time as Roy Thomas Baker and Robin Jeffrey Cable had. We all, the three main engineers at Trident, all reached that point at the same time. And so during the this recording of Freddie Beretti, uh, David... I was talking with David and I happened to mention the way I wanted to move more into production, wanted to have more of an artistic say. And he said, well, I just signed a new management deal. Uh, I was going to produce an album, my, my album myself. I don't know if I'm capable of doing it. Will you co-produce with me? Now, my feeling about David at that point was a very talented guy, a very nice guy, but he was never going to be a superstar. And so too far. Having gone through my first ever assistant engineering job was with the biggest band in the world. My first ever engineering job was with the biggest band in the world. So every fuck up that I made, everyone would hear kind of thing. It was one of those. Things. But here's an artist that no one's ever going to hear. So I can actually learn what I'm doing as a producer and no one's ever going to hear my mistakes. It was perfect <laughs> until he, Angie, his wife and his, his uh, publisher, Bob Grace, came over to my house one evening and we were going through songs for Hunky Dory. On cassettes and within about two songs this was totally different from anything you had done before and suddenly it was here I go again this could be absolutely amazing I can't fuck up basically it's, it's got to be good and we, we went into it I think we were both of us with a certain amount of trepidation because neither of us had really produced properly before but then as we would try things and things would come together and it was working, just the confidence grew and it gave us the confidence to try even more kind of thing. And it worked out quite well. But even that was a flop when it first came out. It took Ziggy, which we recorded yeah. three weeks after Hunky Dory. Uh, and that broke and then Hunky Dory took off. And so were those both two week records basically? Yes. yes. And that's including mixing. There may have been a week also tagged on at the end for mixing. So right, okay. three weeks in all. Uh, the, now, Ziggy was slightly different. There would be a little tag on for that because uh, when it was handed in to RCA, they didn't hear a single. So they, uh, we had to go back in and we recorded Starman as a single and, and put that. We just took it, took round and round the Chuck Berry song 
out of it and just stuck Starman in there instead. And suddenly it's a concept album, as everyone right. seems to think. Yeah. Well, so speaking of that, because I mean, Bowie's such an enigma as an artist, and he has tried he tried everything basically. I mean, he's got a yeah. drum and bass record practically. Yeah. And so yeah. did he have that strong of a concept of who he wanted to be as an artist, or was it just that he knew he wanted to pursue art and he would go wherever it took him, or was it focused for those two records? Because they're, they're oh, pretty absolutely, it was it was it was focused for three three records. The focus started to disappear when we did pinups. Right. But it started before that. The interesting thing was, one of, one of the great things about David, apart from his vocal ability in the studio, uh, the other great thing was finding the right teams to work with to give him what he was after. After we had done pinups, uh, I did go on to do one other track with him in, in uh, Trident. And it was supposedly for Diamond Dogs. It was a track called 1994 Stroke Dodo. It was two songs put together. And it was one of the, David only ever came to two mixes. That was one of them. And the entire time that we were mixing, he kept on playing. I seem to remember it as being a Barry White record, but it was probably just a Philadelphia sound record. And he kept on saying, I want it to sound more like that. I want it to sound more like that, which is what he eventually did. He just went over there and got the American band together to give him exactly what he was after. He knew what he wanted without a doubt. Right. He didn't always know how to get there was the thing. So he would pull the team together and allow the, the team to do what they do. He Complete freedom. Right, once right. He, once he'd set, this is the way, direction I want to go in, then it's complete freedom. You do what you want. So he'd give you a, a framework and then you'd just go. Yeah. yeah. And for, for me, uh, like mi mixing-wise, it was the strangest thing ever because I, I was used to the whole thing if there'd be me as the engineer, there'd be the producer, there'd be the assistant engineer. And at times, we'd all be re and there would be complete mixes from beginning to end. We'd all be leaning over, pushing up faders, pulling them down, changing reverbs, all of that kind of thing during the entire mix. It was a performance, exactly the same as the musicians. The mixes then were performances. But suddenly, David doesn't come. He gets bored in the studio. There's no way he's ever going to hang around for mixes. Uh, some of the time, I didn't even have an assistant engineer. None of the musicians were there. It was just down to me. So how was I going to be able to do all of this? And I finished up mixing in sections. It's the only way I could get the changes and everything that I wanted. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'd do the intro, get that right, cut that piece of tape out, put it to one side. I'd then do the first verse, get that the way I wanted it, edit it onto the intro to make sure the edit worked, and gradually built up the mix that way which was very strange. I kept on doing that for, for years. I, I, interestingly enough, now in Pro Tools, I've moved back to doing it that way. I, I like that way of mixing. Well, because I think that actually became um, not common practice, but it was done quite a bit later on in the 70s. With I know on, on a lot of the Yes albums, those were mixed in sections because okay. sometimes they were tracked in sections. And so that piecing together. Now, when you were doing this, when you're mixing these records on your own, mm -hmm. Was there an approval process with him at that point? Because it's not like you're going to do recalls. No, 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 there wasn't. I just so I, I finished. It, the, I finished the album. I'd finished the album. Send it into the management. They'd send it into the record company. 
And I, I always, I always felt we never, we never even discussed the records. Once they were finished, we never discussed the records. I, I always just looked at it that if he liked what I did, I'd do the next record with him, which is basically what happened. And the only, so, the only one that there was a problem on, and it wasn't him. It was management and uh, the record company. Uh, uh, the opening track on uh, that insane, which to me is the worst mix I've ever done in my life. I now listening <laughs> to it. The concept of the mix was to make David's vocal like one of the instruments, really mix it in with uh, the instruments. So you listen to it, and there's nowhere near enough bloody vocal on it. It's buried. So I, I've completed the album sent it to the management they came back to me a couple of days later and said ken we love the album but can you just do another mix of watch that man and i said sure and as you mentioned it's a completely fresh mix you start all over there's no recall nothing you start yeah. from ground zero again and i did one with more vocals sent it to them they said yeah that's that's better no sorry they didn't they said we prefer the original that was it Fine. Right. Then it went to the record company. They did exactly the same thing. Called me up. Ken, we love the album, but can you do another mix of Watch That Man? I said, I did one from, for the management company. They preferred the original. Yeah, but for us, can you do another mix? So I had to go in and do a third mix of it. And exactly the same again. Sent it to them. You know what? We prefer the original. Bang. And that's what's on there. And I hate it. Wow. Dan to listen to it. But there's obviously got to be something about it, something the way the track yeah. was put together for his voice to be buried in yeah. it. From the beginning but i think that was also the thing is that the the now so much of the production is actually happening during the mix that you do need the approval process whereas there i mean things you're recording with intention at that point oh, absolutely so, I, I, I still do i eq on the way in i i finished up now with most mixes that i do i t there is no eq or anything added i do it all as i record the only thing that gets changed because I can't work like you do. I can't work in the box for love or money. I need the console. I need that being able to push and play with the faders. That, oh, I, I, that's what it's all about for me. It, it, it's that human, the way I put it, and I'm, I'm sure you would argue with this. No, no, not that, at all. That, that human feel of, of playing it the whole time. It's like being one of the musicians. Yeah. And, uh, so that's all I do. I play with the levels, but generally speaking, EQ, compression, all that. Yeah, I have to put some effects on. I put reverb on bits like that because I don't record that. But right, other but are the tones. Yeah, and you know they work together because you've been hearing them the whole time. Got it. Yeah, excellent, excellent. All right, we we got so much more to talk about. Um, <laughs> all right, we can we can skip Super Tramp if you want. I don't know. I'm, I'm at your disposal, Andrew. Well, I want to get to some other stuff too, but you have to talk about Supertramp a little bit because I'm sure everyone's okay. going to get really mad if we don't. So you can talk about anything you would like about Supertramp, sort of how it happens. Were you surprised with the success of that record? Just No. It, 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 two things I'll say. First off, one, I, I turned them down for ages. I, I didn't believe it that because of the demos I was sent, they were atrocious. They were bits and pieces of songs. And I never got it. And then finally I saw them and uh, completely turned around. I loved them. And we went in. But I knew that inner voice, I guess it was that inner voice again, told me that this had to be something special. 
So where is the, the two week situation? As I mentioned earlier on, uh, this, we spent a day and a half just getting the drum sound. Now we should have had like two thirds of the basic track done, tracks done by the time we got the drum sound. So we were going very, very slowly. And towards the end of the two weeks, which is when it was supposed to have been finished, get a phone call from A&M telling, uh, telling us that Jerry Moss, the M of A&M, is in town and wants to come and hear the album. <laughs> no, no, he can't. We're not there yet. No, forget. Oh, he's the boss. He's, if he wants to come along, he's going to come along. So we played him what we did. And it was my first ever introduction to a record company person coming to the studio. I'd never had to deal with that before. And he, he came in and we played it to him and he got up at the, at the end and said, thank you very much. Thank you. I, yeah, it's very good. I like it. And we thought that's it. He hated it. We, it was all like, we expected to come in the next day and get a phone call saying, forget it. It's done. You're no longer under contract. <laughs> uh, instead, we got the phone call. Jerry loved what he heard. Keep doing what you're doing. You have as much money and time as you want. So we wow. took it together and it finished up on and off. It took six months, but it was, it was on and off. I did another couple of two week projects in the middle of that. In fact, one project I think was a, was a week project recording, which was right. Spectrum Billy Cobham. Wow. So that was the Billy Cobham record. I think it was. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Well, but, he's on my, but. <laughs> so, and, and the other thing with, with crime, I it was that record that taught me there is no such thing as perfection because that last night when we completed it, we, we put it all in its running order, the whole thing. It, that was the one time we had the opportunity of hearing it the way other people would hear it on, on the record, just playing it from beginning to end. And the speaker, we mixed it at a studio called Scorpio. And the speakers that they had were Kadak speakers that were seven foot tall. They weighed half a ton each. They were absolutely unbelievable. Now I monitor loudly. I like to feel it as well as just hearing it. Uh, these speakers, I could never turn them up to full blast. It, and they were still clean as, as hell. They were just amazing. So we cranked it. We just sat back, feet up on the board and had it come over us. And my feeling at that point was I'd achieved my perfection. Now I could never get as good as that again. And suddenly that made the next projects I did very, very hard because I had, I've already done my best. What am I doing now? Kind of thing. But then one day I'm driving along and I hear something on the radio. I hear one of the tracks on the radio. Why the hell did I have the drums sounding like that? They should have been much liver. Once I found one mistake, I started to find others. And at that point I realized, Hey, my, my perfection on that day isn't my perfection on another day. And I realized that, there is no such thing. You just all you always have to strive for something because no matter how good you get it on one day, a couple of days later you're going to start to find faults with it, or a month later, or a year later you'll start to find faults with it. Well, and I'm sure like those three different mixes of the Bowie, same Bowie tracks cut yeah. with intention, were all very different. Yeah, you yeah. just respond to different things. Things come up in a different order. Importance shifts, and yeah, yeah, and also you know how's the pollen count, and did you drink last night, and yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, love. Okay, there are two. God, there, there's so many things. Okay, so you work. <laughs> you work with the New Seekers. I did one thing with them. Yes. Now, the New Seekers. <laughs> I'm giving this wrong. They're the ones who did want to teach the world to I sing. Like to teach the world to sing. With 
turned into, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. No, that's the way it started. R oh, it started. Oh, yeah, they, we recorded the ad. I recorded uh, the ad. And then they took the track, edited it and copied it to make it the length of a single, and they just recut vocals. Right, right. Coke out. Okay, so I had it backwards then. All right. I just, I used that on a pub quiz in the music round okay. the other day. So I just wanted to get that Look, straight. My, my life has been so ridiculous. It, it's, the as I said, the first thing I ever, assistant engineer, the biggest band in the world. First thing I ever engineered, biggest band in the world. First thing I ever produced, Hunky Dory. Uh, I moved to LA and just happened to rent a house immediately opposite Zappa. Uh, you haven't got the, only, the only ad I ever did became the ad of the seventies and and closed down the TV series Mad Men. Yes, century basically. absolutely huge, unbelievable, huge. unbelievable. Well, okay, so all right, we can go straight to this other seminal, seminal, seminal recording, which is Lou Reed, the Walk mm -hmm. on the Wild. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about that one because there have been there have been lots of not not full-on documentaries but there are lots of interviews with the bass player and it's his idea to open electric with the upright but just the i'd love to get a better sense of just how that all came together because it's such an amazing track but there was obviously a real vision for it before it started with the not at all not at all everything about it just happened as <laughs> Really, it was it was the typical thing of of Lou taught Rono Mick Ronson the song. Rono then had to teach the musicians, and remember these are all session guys. Uh, Herbie Flowers being on bass, the one of the sort of session guys of the the decade. He played on more hits than I, I yeah, a lot. So we were doing like two or three basic tracks a day. And we, we started this one, and it started off, the first thing, the, the drummer, I can't remember his name at the moment, but he was playing he, uh, he was playing with sticks, and it felt like a march. It felt completely wrong. So I dashed down and said, do you, do you have brushes? And he said, yeah. I said, try those. That worked. So we put it down, and Herb is playing upright bass. We get the, the I think it was acoustic guitar, or it may have been electric guitar playing rhythm, uh, bass and drums. We got the track and Herbie comes up to me upstairs and he, he says, Ken, can I try putting an electric bass part on it? Like, uh, I think he says it's a 12th above. I said, I'm not producing. Go speak with David. So he mentioned it to David and uh, he said, yeah, sure, let's just try it. And that's what gave it. But the whole reason that Herbie came up with this is that the seven pound fifty that they were paid as a session fee back then? If you put on a, a, if you doubled, you got paid double. So he was doing. He only came up with it so that he get paid another seven pounds fifty. That is the best seven pounds fifty anyone ever spent. <laughs> You're not that, kidding. It's you amazing. Are not kidding. God. All right. So one last yeah. one that's <laughs> slightly, a little bit more obscure, possibly for other people, but I'm a. I'm a gigantic yes fan and also a rick wakeman fan and you worked with rick while you were at trident right i well from hunky dory yeah and then uh, uh, i did one track with him from his first solo album yeah right okay the what merry wives of winter or whatever it was called the six wives of henry the eighth yeah 
Yeah, could just as easily have been the Merry Wives of Windsor, but yeah, it probably was. And then they had to change it or something like that. Um, okay, but also, I mean, we touched on Billy Cobham, but there's another sort of list of things. And a really good friend of mine said, You got to ask him about Stanley Clark. Well, so I'm going to ask Stanley Clark. Okay, well, I'm going to go back to get on to Stanley Clark. All right. When I was over in France, I think it was doing Honky Chateau. Uh, it could have been piano player. I'm not sure. Hey, honey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, just getting more refreshments. Uh, no worries. So when we sat down for dinner every night, either Gus or Elton would put on a record whilst we're eating. And the one that they played the most whilst we were eating was this record called uh, Inner Mountain Flame by this strange band called Mahavishnu Orchestra. And I would catch snippets of it, and I thought, what the fuck is this rubbish? It's atrocious. It sounds like five complete junkies all in different rooms playing whatever, they, because I was only getting snatches of it. And it's not the easiest music to sit down, even if you sit down and listen to it, it's, it's complex. But uh, then I'm, I'm back at Trident mixing Honky Chateau or Piano Player, whichever one it was, and I get a phone call from uh, one of the A&R guys at CBS at the time. And he said, Ken, John McLaughlin and Mahavishnu Orchestra are coming over to England to do a TV show, and they'd very much like to meet with you about doing their next album. <laughs> and just, I, I put two and two together. Hang on, Mahavishnu Orchestra... Elton and Gus loved them. Maybe I should listen to the record properly. So I asked him to send me a copy of it. When I sat down and listened to it at home, just that first time, it absolutely blew me away. Incredible. And so, so immediately, yes, 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 yes. And so we, we went on to do Birds of Fire. And from that, it led to this whole other side of my career, which was the, the more jazz, jazz fusion stuff, which, which led to, to uh, four albums, I think it was, with Cobham, uh, three albums with Stan, uh, Dixie Dregs, yeah, uh, it, yeah. With Stan, it was a joy. My, I've been able to do what I do for fifty years because I've been able to work with the most incredible talents in the world, and it's it's so easy. I do the same thing every single session. I'm a creature of habit. Do exactly the same, and. I don't change anything. It's what happens in the studio that changes. It's the different drum kits, the different players. The, that's what changes it. And so that, that whole thing of, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago uh, about my career. And as part of it, I went to all of the different members of Mahavishnu and said, why me? Because I was such not the obvious choice. This was a, a jazz band. and. Uh, kind of, and you expect them to be in a, a certain way. Uh, but none of them could remember, why me? So I never found <laughs> out, but it, it worked perfectly because it gave, they came in with the musician's chops and I came in with the rock and roll background, put yeah. the two together and it, it worked perfectly. And Except that's what I think you hear that um, on the track you put on your playlist, which is from Birds of Fire. Yeah. The first, the second half of it is almost a blues jam, but the first yeah. half, it sounds like 70s King Crimson. I mean, it's, yeah. it's heavy, odd meter, almost yeah. prog, but with different instrumentation. But yeah. I don't think 
a more traditional, whatever that means, engineer for their genre would have brought that out of them. And I think that's one of the most exciting, the power that John gets out of an acoustic guitar rivals anything anybody does in electric. And it takes somebody who hears it that way. I think it's great. Well, one, one, one of the greatest compliments I've ever been paid, uh, talking to, to Jeff Beck at one point, and Jeff said, you, you realize you changed everything. And I said, how do you mean? He said, with Birds of Fire, that just changed everything. Well, fuck me, here's one of the greatest guitarists ever, probably. And he's saying, I ch- that's amazing. It just blew me away when I was... Uh, it's, it's the genre hopping, like it's what Miles was chasing, you yeah. know, it really yeah. went more pop, but I mean, all through Jack Johnson and on the corner and all that stuff. I mean, that's what he was chasing. And I yeah. feel like, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a massive Miles Davis fan and I love those records. Yeah. But at the same time, they never sonically went there. They were always cut as jazz records. And yes. I love what you put onto what could have ostensibly just been another jazz record, but it yeah. wasn't. It was a new genre. And it cost the, ba- it cost the band money because CBS at that point was wholly unionized. So they're supposed to, part of the recording contracts was you have to use one of our engineers. Right. And so in using me, at least when we recorded in England at Trident, that was okay. But then when we completed the album at uh, Electric Lady, New York, we would start round about 12, one o'clock. A CBS engineer would come in. What time did you finish last night? One o'clock. Okay, thanks. I'll see you tomorrow. And he'd go <laughs> off and he's getting paid by the as part of the recording budget. So it has to be recouped by the band. Oh, God. Just for him turning up at the beginning of the session, finding out what time we finished the night before. And he's been, they're having to pay him the entire time. So, wow. yeah, it, it cost them to use me, but uh, I think it paid off for them. Now, were those records, because I mean, I think, especially when you see them live, they're obviously an amazing band oh, and, yeah, and yeah. play like that. But were those records cut live like a jazz record, or were they put yeah. together more like yeah. a. Okay, so they were cut live. Mer, Mer Vishnu was cut live. Uh, but with Stan, I think the first album, a lot of it was was pretty live. But as we went on, we we did a bit more. Uh, like one one of the things I used to do with with Stan, which he didn't quite get the first time I showed him it, but then got into it. He he'd have these ridiculously fast runs, and doing it on bass, he would hit it perfectly, but it just became blurred. So what I had him do, we then go back. I turn the tape down to half speed. I'd have him play the game perfectly in time with the other one. We take it back up to normal speed, and there it is. You can hear every note, and it's played perfectly. And so there'd be those kind of things we'd do. And uh, yeah, some of it was was overdubbed. One of the worst sessions for me was on school days. The the one thing I always wanted was Cobham and Clark together. Right. Oh God, I wanted it so badly. Then it happened. Then it <laughs> wasn't what I expected. They, they were trying to outplay each other the entire time. And we'd do a take. And it was just ridiculously. In, it, they were playing amazingly, but you couldn't tell what was going on. So they'd come in. Oh, no. I said, guys, look, just tone it down. You could get both get to show your things. They'd go back in, and they'd overplay again. And finally, after a few takes, they got it. And calm down then we got an incredible take 
But uh, and, the other thing with that album, sorry, just one other quick thing with yeah. that. This was at the time of Quad, just as Quad, four speaker Quad, was was being pushed. Now, one of the things I was asked by A and M if I would do uh, a quad mix of Crime of the Century, and I said, "Yeah, sure, I'd love to." And they said, "Well, how long? How long would it take you?" I said, "It'd probably take two, two and a half weeks." And they said, "Oh, we've got a guy that would do it in two afternoons." Now, that's the way quad was being looked at by the majors at that point. Well, it, it never took off. But yeah. what we said, we went to Atlantic and we said, "Look." No one's actually recorded something specifically for Quad. Can we do it on this album? They said, what a great idea. Oh, yes, please. So we did. We, everything was done specifically so that we could mix it in Quad. We did the Quad mix. We're about to master. I get a phone call from Atlantic. Ken, we've, uh, we want to put the stereo out first. But, but we haven't done stereo mixes. We only did the Quad because that's what we'd agreed. Oh, I'm sure you can find a way around it. So we just put the back together with the front, and that's what you hear. Luckily, so you it down and that was that. Yep. So I'm just curious, though, with the two of them in the room, do you think it was just the excitement of playing together, or were they competing? Like, oh, competing. What? Most definitely competing. Just showing off to each other. Yeah, like of course. Well, the, the, <laughs> the band that I work with, uh, there's that side of it. No, they both knew what they could do and what the other person could do, but they, it was trying to top each other. Uh, with a band I worked with, the Dixie Dregs, uh, I'd been approached about working with them, heard their first album, I thought I could actually bring something to it, so we agreed. They came to LA and we were in SIR, Studio Instrument Rentals, for pre-production. And I said, okay, play me a song, play me a tune. And I sat down about halfway through it, I just got up, went over and stopped them, and I laid into the drummer. It was, look, this part you just done, you don't play all over the place. All you do is boom, boom, cha, boom, 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 cha. He said, you've got to be fucking kidding. I said, no, that's what you do there. And I slowly but surely got him to simplify almost everything he did. And he hated me. He <laughs> wanted me dead. He eventually understood because the, these were young, basically young kids out of Miami University, and uh, they wanted to show off what they could do the entire time. And it, it, it took a little, uh, took a couple of numbers, but he eventually understood it's the overall thing you're interested in. You all get your own time to show off. You can't all do it at the same time. And he got that. And uh, now he thanks. He says, "You gave me a career. Thank you. I could never have kept what I." I could never have got as far as I did playing the way I did then. But That's he, awesome. He hated me for that that time. Well, it's a sign of a good producer who's not afraid to have the drummer hate you, I think. Right. So, all right, you just took us to L.A., so let's talk about that. Okay. So you moved there in 76? Yes. And you you immediately were living across the street from the Zappas, is that right? <laughs> At the top of uh, top of Laurel Canyon. Yeah, yeah, that's the way it went. The first of all the places we could possibly go to in LA, uh, we happened to rent a house. I dropped the family off to have the gas turned on, the electric, and all of that. Whilst I went to A and M to finish off some mixes that I was doing, came back at like six or seven o'clock in the evening, and there were no lights on or anything. 
And I went over, and of course, this is before cell phones and all that. I go over and I'm banging on the door, and no one's answering. I get back in my car, and I'm sitting there, and I'm starting to get really pissed. And then eventually, there's a knock on the car window, and I turn around. There was my eldest daughter, and she's with this other girl. Wind the window down. Yes. Hi, Daddy. Do you know someone called Frank Zappa? <laughs> yeah, why? Oh, this is his daughter, Moon Unit. Uh, he lives just over there. We're hanging out there. Do you want to come over? <laughs> of all the places. It happened to be just across the street from, from Zappa's. That's amazing. And, yeah. Uh, and it's a nice part of the world, too, because oh, I, yeah. I was a sink of your tech back in the day. So I got to go up there and I worked in the studio a few times and it's just an amazing place. But yeah, yeah. and the kids were always there. Yeah. Hanging around. So, yeah. but did you, you never actually worked with Frank, did you? No. No. No, not at all. We, we uh, would ha hang out a little, but we were both workaholics. So it, it's, it, it was tough. There would be occasional times. It was more the families that got together than, than Frank and I. Right. But Gail, um, Mrs. Zappa, was the way into one of my favorite things on your discography, actually. Oh. So <laughs> do you want to, you just tell the story, because it's, I'm sure it's going to well, be better I, to your mouth. We'd eventually found the house that we, we bought, which was about five minutes away from Frank's, just down the road, basically. And uh, one Saturday afternoon, oh no, I, before that, I'd gone to see uh, Frank play at uh, Poly Pavilion, UCLA. And he got a new drummer with him, a, a kid called Terry Bozio, that I was absolutely blown away with and thought he was incredible. And a backstage afterwards telling Frank how much I, I love the new drummer and all of that. Cut a few, a few months later, and a Saturday afternoon, I get a phone call from, from Gail, his, uh, Frank's wife. And she says, Terry Bozio and his wife, Dale, and one of, uh, one of uh, Frank's guitarists, Warren Cucurullo have just come up here. They f they're forming a band together. And Frank thought you might like to, to it, you might be interested in it. Can they come down and play you some stuff? So they, they came down and they had a boom box with them that they, they played these demos on and they were shit. It was terrible. <laughs> but it's that inner voice, always that inner voice. There was something, and I can only assume it's because I'd seen what Bozio was capable of that pushed me. I, yeah, well, let me hear you play live. Well, we're only rehearsing at the moment. I said, okay, let me come down to a rehearsal. And went down there, and I, yeah, I could see how I could work with it. And we worked with it a bit, and then we went into Frank's studio, brand new studio, to record four, actually five songs. The reason we went into Frank's studio, he let us have it for nothing, because it had just been built. He knew my reputation for finding every bloody fault that was possible to find in a studio. He wanted to come off the road and go straight to record. So get me in there, find everything that's wrong, get it fixed. That'll be perfect for when he comes back. So we got the studio for free for a couple of weeks to record these songs. We had lots of downtime. That's why it was a couple of weeks. Uh, but he came back to a really good working studio and we got some great recordings out of it. And Everyone was, then we tried to, to shop a deal for them. They eventually became known as Missing Persons. The original name was US Drag, but they, they, we changed that to Missing Persons. And we tried shopping them 
probably two or three times throughout LA, got turned down everywhere. We tried England, we tried Australia, we couldn't get them a deal. So we put out our own four song 45 EP, seven inch EP. And it just so happened that one of the tracks on it became the most re most requested record of the year on K-Rock, K-R-O-Q, which was the up and coming radio station in LA at the time. Yeah. And it, it got us a record deal. And uh, we went on to sell 800,000 units on the first album. And that's what, 85, 86, something like that? Uh, I'd, I'd say 84. 84. 84, 84, yeah, something like that, I think. That's so, you got to the name of the band, so Missing Persons. Everybody yeah. who's watching this, if you don't know the band Missing Persons, you need to. Um, and also, if you don't know Warren Cucurullo, he's the best line in Catholic Girls because of the way she says his name. Warren Cucurullo. It's amazing. So the Zappa well, song. But, but be very careful. If you do do a Google on Warren, he did go through a spell where he had his own pornography, I think it was, a video site on the internet. And he would do interviews with the public whilst he was in the shower washing himself. And it just, yeah. The, the, and he blames me for all of that. You see, one of the things. Uh, well, Dale, before she became married to uh, Terry, she did Penthouse, she did Playboy. And oh, I should mention, I eventually became the band's manager because we couldn't fi even find a manager that would look after the band. So I, I was the engineer, producer and manager of the band. We were talking and we knew that press would eventually pick up on, on Dale and the Penthouse and Playboy thing. So we, we tried to figure out a way around it so that would kind of make it funny. And so what we decided to do was, yeah, so Dale did Penthouse. We got Warren to do the centerfold for Playgirl. <laughs> and then Terry did Architectural Digest. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave us the, the perfect thing. Now, the fact that he had so much fun doing the Playgirl centerfold, he blames me for everything that carried on afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> I think we can leave that one right there. Yeah. Right. There. Yeah. And if you want to know anything about him, go watch the early videos with Dale, who's basically wearing saran wrap for yeah. the first video. Not much else going on there. But also look very carefully because there are many attributes that, that uh, she brought to the whole thing that has been copied almost perfectly by Lady Gaga. Absolutely. I mean, as a front woman, she mm. amazing, amazing. But also the way you put the records together sonically. I mean, I don't think there's ever not a doubled vocal, right? I mean, she's never sort of on her own. It's lots of layering, even with the lead oh, vocal. No, no, she's on her own. That's well, no, not that anyone else is singing with her, but I'm just talking like. Um, no, no, I did, we didn't double. Oh, really? I, so it, if I remember correctly. It, there were doubles. Yeah, of course. It's certain, but I, I'm. I won't say renowned for, but I, I tend to very much the 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 verses will be single and the choruses will always be doubled. Uh, I was stuff today, and I must have only listened to choruses then, because I was trying to remember. Because I mean, I listened to it a lot back in when mm -hmm. I was in college in the late '80s, but it's been that long since I'd listened, and it just I love the the production and the style of the record because it's not that much like a lot of the other stuff you've done, but it's perfect for that band and it holds up. 
a lot of stuff, we, even with those same sort of effects and things, could sound dated now. And those albums, no. absolutely. I that, think that's, the, that's the interesting thing I find about most of my work. It, it's, we don't, I don't think we've ever really gone for the, the sound du jour. It, it, it's, we, we, we don't use the latest synth sound or the latest Phil Collins drum sound or anything like that. It, it's just a regular drum kit getting the best sound we can out of it. It's just a regular bass guitar. There, there might be a couple of little bits, but most of the time it's just natural. That's the, that's the kind of sound I go for. And so it never really goes out of date. But I think there's also, there's some engineers who, um, I mean, Al Schmidt is a perfect example of someone yeah. who's a completely natural engineer. Yes. But really, um, he's capturing what's there, whereas you're still yeah. creating sounds i mean the sound of the drums on the missing persons record it's not just an acoustic kit in a room like there's a real thing to it and i think maybe to you 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 hear it as being natural but to me i almost hear you're making up a sound because that's what the song's supposed to be like the band has a really right. strong sonic personality to me okay and part of terry and you know i mean there, there's well, a lot to it terry is the most musical drama i've ever worked with uh, the, the way he uses a drum kit, especially, you've seen his drum kit today, have you? Not recently, no. Oh, he has two sets of toms. Uh, one set is chromatically tuned, the other one is diatonically tuned. He <laughs> uses like about five, five or six bass drums. He has several snare drums. Symbols like you would everything you wouldn't believe. It's and it, it's he doesn't use it with any other musicians. It's just for solo performances and it's amazing he he plays he plays music on the drums he's taken it from just being a rhythmic instrument to being a musical instrument but that's how he used to how he would play the the drums with the cymbals at certain point he or because he co-wrote every one of the songs he knew exactly what he wanted to do and where to put emphasis emphasis on certain words certain beats uh, he was using rotor toms at the time, so that would give a different uh, tom sound. And I also, with him, I did my trick of uh, having the, the bass drum mic mounted in the bass drum with both heads on. So right. that gives a different bass drum sound. And that's a closed front head? Yes, yes. Right. Completely. Yeah. Right, so the, the cable going in through the air hole and... That's it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I know we want to get to some questions and things too, but so real quickly, uh, the tubes. Oh, what a joy <laughs> that was. As well as learning more about drugs than uh, I ever wished to know, because <laughs> they used to do all their dealing in the vocal booth, and so we'd have a mic, we'd just bring a mic up and listen to what was going on in there. Uh, but <laughs> no, it was a joy. It was. A strange album because even though I treat each song on an album as its own entity, there, there are going to be things that hang together within all of the tracks. Ziggy, one of the things that is, is virtually constant on it is the acoustic guitar on every track. Even if it's a rock and roll track, there is acoustic guitars, which is basically taking uh, the, the I didn't like cymbals at the time. So I think I used, I mi I would, I'd mix them down. And I think the acoustic guitar sort of took that, that range of where yeah. the cymbals would have been. 
So that that's there all the time. But with with the tubes, number one, there are th three three different vocalists. Every song is just you go for a, a totally different character for that from uh, Slip My Disco, which is a total disco song to uh, there's a, a, an old. We tried to do the Jordanaires and an old Elvis song. Then there's Don't Touch Me There, which we went all out for Spectre. We even used Jack Nietzsche to do the, uh, arrange the orchestral arrangement to get more of the Spectre feel and everything. So it, that was amazing, just being not having to worry about going from one track to the next. Everything was going to be different. But of course, I mean, that's how you learn, too. I get questions all the time about how do you keep albums consistent things. And I just pointed all the Beatles records you made. Every song is totally different. They've got yeah. four lead singers in the band because Ringo was yeah. going to sing one. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it, it's it's a record because you say it's a record. And yeah. it's, it only doesn't hang together if it's not good. Right. Yeah. So I, it's brilliant. Um, if, it's right. in the, if it's in the grooves, it's going to happen. Yeah. And yes. I know that's a dated that's a dated thing saying in the grooves, but that can also be taken musically as a groove if it's there. It's it's yeah. gonna. Happen. I mean, there like there are so, like there's some some yes songs. Just talking about the doing the mixes in pieces and tracking in pieces. Yeah. There are yes songs which from section to section sound like completely different records, but it doesn't yeah. matter. And as soon as you've heard it twice, you expect it and you like it, and it's what yeah. you enjoy about it because it's done well. Well, that's that's why "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" is one of my one of the songs that I picked. It's because of that the three completely separate sections, although it was all recorded in one. As such, uh, we we didn't do a separate section and edit them together. It was it, right. that was all one. Then the overdubs were kind of more separated. But it's that 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 was the first time I can think of of trying to get completely different feels and sounds for each each section, the three different sections. And I, it, it worked for me. Yeah, yeah, and no one's telling you you can't, so you right. do. Well, that was, the th that, that was why they were the greatest thing for me, is that learning as an engineer, because I didn't, the first time I sat aboard with them, I had no idea what I was doing. I never engineered anything before. I knew that if you, I, I knew how to turn a knob and push a fader up and down. What they did, I had no idea. And there I am with the biggest band in the world. And it, that first session was a write-off. But because of the relationship, I always say that uh, our job is 75% personality-driven. Uh, it's how you get on with people, if they like you, if they trust you. If they don't trust you, they're going to be look, looking over your shoulder the entire time. And that's the worst experience in the world. Uh, so I think as an assistant engineer, I'd built up enough of a relationship with them that even though the first session, yeah, it was iffy, they would trust me to go on further and, and it, it worked out. Yeah, it, it kind of did. Thank you. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about Devo, if <laughs> you want. <laughs> we could end this little tour with Devo because I thought that's a good place to stop that and then we can talk a little bit about what you're doing now and then we got to get some questions in too if you've got time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm here. Great, I'm great. Really, I'll just get more and more drunk, don't worry. Perfect, <laughs> perfect. You'll get the real story then. <laughs> Devo, yes. I was first told about them by uh, an assistant engineer that I worked with at a place called Chateau Recorders in North Hollywood, 
which I use I used for a couple of years exclusively, basically. And uh, he told me about them. I thought you got to be fucking joking. That that sounds awful. He played me their their first record. I thought that's atrocious. It's horrible. I can't stand it. The Brian Eno one. And then they played Saturday Night Live. That completely turned me around. And suddenly it was, I get it. Yes, I want. I, and then shortly after that, they came to me. Would you, would you produce? I, I went up. <laughs> I went up to San Francisco. Saw them play live. And I definitely want to do it now. I'm sure you know that sometimes the first meeting with an act where you're trying to sort of find out where you stand, where they stand, and all of that kind of thing, it can be a little touchy. Yeah. Well, it just so happened my, my ex-wife, <laughs> there's a reason she's my ex-wife, uh, was there at this, it was a breakfast meeting the day after, uh, morning after they played the gig. And it was this first meeting and it got a little touchy and she got very defensive on my part. And she laid into them. No, no, shut up, shut up. So it's, it worked out okay, but I, I met with their manager uh, and he said, yeah, they want to work with you. They do have one, one question. Said, yeah, what's that? Said, uh, your wife doesn't come to sessions, does she? Said, no, don't worry. <laughs> wow. Yes, but now working, working with them, it, as with the tubes, very, very professional at what they do. Uh, until someone walks into the studio, then they take on their persona. Right. It, it's they go they go mad. And they, at one point during the Devo album, the management of the studio asked if they could show someone round that wanted to uh, possibly use it after we'd finished. I said sure. And as this guy walked in, Mark Mothersbrough started to run around the studio screaming at the top of his voice. As soon as the guy walked out, then it was back. Okay, now I'll play the, play the part properly. That kind of thing. And it was very much the same with the tubes. They would go into personalities if someone came in. Otherwise, they were themselves and totally professional musicians and incredible musicians. Spooner was great. Uh, Prairie Prince on, on drums was amazing. It, 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 they were so good. Mike Cotton on, on synth and Vince Wilnick, just all of them. They were great. I also, I love, I wanted to just point this out because um, I think it a lot. You've just said it. I think sometimes it's really, really important to see a band live because early recordings, you may not get from them what they yeah. think they are. And if you ask a band to describe themselves, you get, a different description from every single person in the band. They'll think, ah, oh, we're an R&B rock thing. Oh no, we're a deep metal prog thing. We're, a... But we see them live and it's that crystallizes everything about what's important, what the energy is gonna come from. Is the rhythm a big deal? Is the singer the star? I mean, all of that stuff. And you get it in one song on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Yeah. You know who that is. Elvis Costello on Saturday Night Live, just to talk about another performance, where if you thought Elvis was a little bit of a troubadour songwriter, you realize, oh, no, 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 he's a punk who happens to write more lyrics yeah. than punks yeah. do. Yeah, so, no, right. important point. Um, yeah, all right. I think unless there's anything you wanted to go back and touch on, I think, do you want to just talk about what you're doing now? Because you're up, yeah. um, you're teaching right at Leeds Beckett yeah, University. Kind of, kind of, sort of. Adjunct. I'm, I'm uh, a senior lecturer at uh, Leeds, at a 
university up here called Leeds Beckett University. Now it's the Lee, uh, uh, I've got to remember, we changed the name just recently. It's uh, Leeds School of Arts, I think it is. But uh, the way I learned being in a studio and, and just watching great engineers work and picking up from there and then eventually getting to, to try it myself and find out what I'm doing, that's not there anymore. Now it has to come from, from schools, universities, that kind of thing. And so I, the way I look at my, my gig at Leeds Beckett is I'm there to try and teach the next generation that are learning what it used to be like, how it used to be fun. It's, these days it's sitting in front of a damn computer. And, and I, I'll look at people in the, in the university working and they're not having fun. It's not like it used to be. And it's try and tell them the way I work and the way I've always worked and the way it was back then, the good things about back then. I love technology. I love the technology we have today. There are things we can do today that we could never dream of doing back in the day. I feel that we have allowed technology to take us over. Uh, if we have 100 plugins, we have to use 100 plugins, or at least 99 plugins, on every single goddamn track. No, we don't. It's, I'm a firm believer that everything on a good record happens in the studio, not in the control room. It starts off with a great song. And a great song is one that sounds just as good, just with an acoustic guitar and vocal as it does yeah. with the full production. Then it's down to the performance. And now I've, I've been blessed. I've worked with probably the best studio performer ever. That's Bowie. Of I co-produced four albums with him and 95% of the vocals on those albums were first take, beginning to end, not changing a thing. Wow. I, would, I would play the tape get the level and the sound, go back to the beginning, hit record. What he did that one time through is what you still hear today. So I'm, it's a pretty high standard for me. These days for me, it's more I'll do seven complete takes, and it always has to be complete because I think that's the only way you can get a performance. If you do it bit by bit, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a performance. Right. Uh, so I do seven, and then I disappear on my own, and I will, I will put the final vocal together. But uh, it's, it happens in the studio. The sound happens from the studio. I started four track. So we had to combine things together. And the EQ we had was minimal. So we had to get the sound in the studio, go with that. And that's what we had to live with. And that's still the way I work today. So I look at what I try and teach the, the students. Don't be afraid to, to make a decision. You don't have to leave 12 guitar solos up to the mix engineer to decide what's best. Oh, Fucking God. guitar solo. Just decide what works. Oh, and especially when that guitar solo is recorded across six tracks with a DI. Oh, of course, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's the kind of thing we, we touch briefly on the, the fact I don't have to EQ much now because I do it all, all in. It's like if I'm recording a guitar and I'll use a room mic on that guitar, just to place it slightly differently in the mix. I don't keep the room mic and the, the amp mic separate. I mix them together the way I want them. I make the decision then and there. There's nothing wrong with it. It's do that. And 
save time later it, it, and you yeah. know what you're aiming towards when when you yeah. do that yeah and there's no there's no perfect way to do anything so whatever no. you do is you make it work because that's what's there and i, I think when i've been teaching i sort of there's an analogy which is not very well thought out, but it's this idea of what are you building on? So if you build on things that can change, you're building on sand and you don't know that the stuff you're doing now is going to work with what that's going to turn into. Yes. So the more you do on the way in, and if, if you record it to separate tracks, it's fine. But the people who, who record their guitars, let's say every microphone separate, yes. they do balance as they're recording. That balance yes. never, ever, ever, ever changes. So you might as well be on one track. Yeah, yeah. Then shape everything else around it. And it yeah. just it gets you to the finish line, but it also makes things coherent. People, are, and especially when you get to the point where someone's got to sing a complete take of a song, yeah. what are they singing to? They got to sing to the song and that yeah. better not change later, so. And, and the whole thing of it being a song, the probably the hardest project I've ever done was with an English band called Level 42. Yeah. The reason it was so hard, we didn't have any songs going in. They would go down to the studio, they would groove, come up and hear it, okay, that groove works. Now let's write a song around that. I never knew what the song was going to be, so I never knew what direction to take, what things should sound like, where it should go, the whole thing. And it was really hard for me. Right. I, I, need to, I need to have an idea of where we're heading. That's why I, do, I don't understand the, the modern thing, which you're a part of, and all power to you being part of that. It's having that separate mixing engineer. You can't pin this on me, man. No, I'm not. No, no, I'm. I'm you, you do it, and you do it very well. I don't understand how you can do it as well as you do it. It's, it's really difficult, to be yeah. honest really is yeah. and especially like even with bands that I love and they have a big discography so you, there is a known entity mm -hmm. it's really really difficult to get recordings hear something in your head and be able to get it there because of course what you hear in your head is a feeling it's not a sonic thing yeah but the tracks aren't necessary anyway it that's a whole nother yeah. conversation but yeah. yeah it's very very different yeah different. there's another thing that I think I've noticed um, going to talk at a lot of different schools and meeting with the um, the recording students is that while they're at a school, you would think like, oh, great, that gets them out of their bedroom and they're in rooms with other people, but they still don't collaborate. We went to, I was at the Leeds College of Music, which I'm assuming is right around the corner from where you are, yeah. and very talented people, amazing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Great but they've got this sort of common room cafeteria lounge type thing, yeah. which is the first floor of the building. And there were probably a hundred students in there and every single one of them is wearing headphones, working yeah. on a laptop. Yeah. None of them are saying, hey, check this out. And the way I would do uh, these little master classes in the morning is each person would play their stuff. We'd listen to five minutes of it and I'd just give them some feedback. And it was the first time they'd played anything for anybody. Yeah. yeah. And I, that's, I think, and you can do that completely online. You don't have to get in a room with that. But I think for the younger engineers starting out to collaborate, just to say, hey, what do you think? And someone will say, ooh, why don't we put a herd of elephants on this? Yeah. And they say, well, how do you record a herd of elephants? Yeah. And say, well, Ken Scott puts a 67 on everything. So yeah. put a right. <laughs> the elephants, do it, and that will inspire right. you and get you moving the, again. The, the thing is, do you mic the elephants up individually, or do you just use a stereo pair? No, section mics, section yeah. mics. You can't trust them. You cannot trust them. No, I know. But 
<laughs> yeah, right. But it, what what's interesting? Number one, I try as much as possible to do classes by doing a masterclass, bringing a band in, because I've been doing the same thing for fifty years. I do things just automatically. I don't even realize I'm doing them. So when yeah. I'm talking to the students, I'll miss a lot of what I do because I don't even realize I'm doing it. Whereas if they're watching what I'm doing, then, well, why did you suddenly go and do that? Now, I have to think about why I did it. Now I can tell them. And yeah. at, at one point, I, I have quite a few of the, the records that, that I did, the, the multi-tracks on Pro Tools. And at one, one point, I, I brought up something, I can't remember what it was, and I just turned to one of the students and said, okay, come over and mix it. He was paranoid. He was absolutely terrified. He didn't know what to do. They'd never sat in front of the board and pushed things up. And it, uh, it was very interesting watching it. Very I think it's, it's great. And it's also, because I've noticed, um, I actually attended a workshop that Al Schmidt did about a uh, big band recording oh. and being in the room and watching someone do stuff. Cause I would watch Al and he'd do something. And then I remember a couple of times afterwards, I'd say, Al, so look, when you were doing this, like, I think I would figure out his thought process and it would turn out I hadn't at all, but I'd sort of deciphered what he's doing back into yeah. my own thought process. So yeah. the, I think the more experienced you are, the more you can get out of watching other people work too. It's just because yeah. you'll hear something, think like, oh, right, how are they going to deal with that? It's definitely not yeah. right. Then you watch them deal with it. But then intellectually, that's not the way they were hearing it at all. But you still get to a place where it, it works. So yeah. I love the fact that you're doing that. And one of the tracks on your playlist, your, uh, your in, um, perspiration playlist, is by Mackenzie Lee Meyer. Yeah. And that's a you did during one of your master classes. Absolutely, I did it at a university up in, in Canada, and uh, it's, it's on there because to me it, it was it was an early master class that I did. I've done several more since then, but uh, it shows that the talent is out there, and it's none of it is auto tuned. There's no moving around and all that. It's her performance. It's the musicians' performances. <laughs> who are all students at the, at the university and it, it stands up for me it stands up with with a lot of other records out there uh and the talent is there unfortunately we we appear to be at least with major labels it's very much we're going to make an act it's very much like it was before the beatles it's very singles oriented and yeah. it's very we'll make the artist we'll make them look right we'll make them sound right it doesn't matter if they're not singing on the track well these days they are singing on the track we just auto tune it to make it sound like they can sing that kind of thing and uh it's going to turn around i i totally believe in talent i think that that band like the beatles is going to come along it it, it will be nothing like the beatles but yeah. it's going to come along and change everything and suddenly it will be the record business will be back where it, it needs to be and if it's anything like it was then, I mean, um, I was lucky enough to work on a couple Neil Diamond records, and he was a Brill Building writer. So he would yeah. write a song. Yeah. He'd show up in this building in New York where all the yeah. publishers were, and he'd play the song for all the publishers. Then he'd go home, write some more songs, show up the next day. And he said overnight, every independent songwriter was out of work yeah. because everybody wanted bands that wrote their own songs. Yeah. When the Beatles broke, that was it. The model was done. And that's the only reason he became an artist. 
because it was either wow. singing your own songs yeah. or you're because nobody wanted writers anymore. And so that kind of sea change can happen. I mean, I don't know if it can happen quite that seismically now because no. of the splintering, but it can absolutely happen. Oh, yeah. But it, it, that particular time in England was so phenomenal. That, that can never happen. The talent that came out of this small island uh, after the war, that, that there was something that triggered the artistry from songwriters to players to singers to producers to engineers. There's a group of us, all of the same age, round about yeah. the same age, that just changed everything. And it's all from this small island at the same time. Unbelievable. Yeah, Unbelievable. it's, I mean, the, I, because I've always been a huge fan of British music. British rock is my favorite music. Like, that's it. And it's it's this weird filter that other music goes through because I mean a lot of the bands, especially like the Beatles, would always talk about the the American influence and what they were listening to. And a lot of English bands say, "Well, we were listening to American this and yeah. whatever." But it's the filter it comes through is so different, and yeah. it goes to the sonics of how the records end up sounding. All of it, but it's yeah, it is this really what? incredible powerhouse. There's, there's that weird thing of the grass is always greener. There, uh, at one point, the Beatles would have done anything to have sounded like a Motown band. Yeah. Just that sound that they used to get in Motown. They would have killed to get that. But at their height, we got, back then it was a telex, <laughs> uh, <laughs> from a Motown saying how much they loved the Beatles sound and how they would kill to get the same sound as the Beatles. There you go. Grass is always greener. The grass is Can you always. Move to the question? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's get some questions going. So, Mark, yeah. do you want to come in and do some stuff, and then we'll uh, and then we'll wrap this up. But this has been awesome. Thank you so much again, Ken. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, Great. absolutely. This again. is amazing. Yeah, especially at the moment, there's nowhere else I can go. <laughs> <laughs> People are having a ball. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to start with the number one question here from John Martin. Do you have any favorite or notable memory of working with David Bowie in the studio that you haven't already covered? I, it, the, the most memorable for me is, is the vocals. It's, mm. I've never worked with an artist quite like that. He was just absolutely astounding. But like second under that, it, it's things like re recording uh, Life on Mars, recording Aladdin Sane, just it goes along with his being able to find musicians that would give him what he wanted and rick wakeman was perfect for giving him what he wanted for life on mars and mike garson was perfect for giving him what he wanted on on aladdin sane and on time and uh, just yeah he could pick musicians and my whole thing has just been working with great musicians i do what i do very quickly put my feet up on the board and just have this music wafting over me it's fucking amazing <laughs> best best drug in the world is sitting there listening to great musicians just play. Mm. Amazing. Okay, uh, I like this one a lot. David Pickney asks, "Do you have any advice if you were to work with the 1960s Beatles today?" Um, and I think another way to put that would be, "Do you have any advice for your younger self if you were back in that position, knowing what you no. know now?" No. I, I look the way my life has gone. I, I wouldn't second guess. Maybe I wouldn't have married. The first okay. Time. But apart from that, <laughs> it, 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 
<laughs> awesome. Uh, okay, so Jose Orozco asks, how is the vocal for Hey Jude recorded? Huge fan and much respect, Ken. I didn't do it, it was done at Trident. Uh, I only went there for the mix. I would guess it would have been 67s because that's what they had quite a few of at uh, Trident. Mm. Uh, and just to put one rumor to rest for the people actually watching this, uh, it was John Lennon that threw off the headphones saying, fucking hell, about <laughs> two thirds of the way through the song. Because it's been, it's been said that it was McCartney because he played something wrong on the piano. That whole thing, it was the headphones, were, apparently the headphones were too loud. So John threw them off and he cursed and sweared and they never pulled it out. It's played ever since. <laughs> Issue resolved. <laughs> nice. Okay, uh, next question. We'll just fly through these quickly here. Um, this one's from Matt Vienna. And he asks, uh, which mics on Elton John's piano? I believe, because I think I was only using two mics at the time, so it would have been probably a, a KM56 or a 54 on the high end and a 67 on the low end. Now mm. I've, I've, I started to have phase problems, discovering phase pro uh, problems, so I started to put a third mic in the middle, another 67 up the middle, and I used that just enough to get rid of the phase, any phase problems between the two mics. Mm. Amazing. And were all the Elton John albums cut on a grand, or would he go back and forth to a, an upright if the song called for it? Or we never well on the ones that I did, we never never had an upright. So right. Okay, here's another great one. Uh, this is from Charles Emil Bioden. He asks, "What did you learn from all of those great artists that help you get better yourself?" Oh God, I learned something from every one of them. I hope because uh, it's all about learning and improving. It's, it's always striving to, to, to do better. Uh, I, 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 I guess the, the best answer to that really is from, from that beginning of working, having, having the ability to experiment. I was working with the one band in the world at the time that they had all the money in the world, they had no time problems in the world, and they never wanted the instrument to sound the same way twice, which gave me carte blanche to try any mic in any position with any EQ. I always felt that the freedom I felt was that I could completely fuck something up, and there'd be as much chance of the guys coming up and, and saying, oh, God, that sounds like shit, as there was of them coming up and saying, oh, God, that sounds like shit, but I like it, we'll use it. And that, that really frees you up. Uh, for, uh, McCartney wanted to, to use a different mic on something, and I have no idea what it was. So he and I went into the, the mic room where they store all the mics. And I was looking for a mic that uh, I thought would sound good on whatever the instrument was. Mm -hmm. He just turns around and says, oh, I like the look of that one up there. Let's use that. He was more interested in what it looked like rather than what it sounded like. And it's, that's amazing freedom for someone learning, trying to learn their gig. And something I, I say to the students all the time, one of the most annoying things is walking down the corridors. There are several rooms at Leeds Beckett and you walk down the corridor and you'll find them empty. 
and I know myself and several of the other uh, professors, we try and ram home to them, look, experiment here because it's free. Once you leave this place and go out there, the studio costs money. You're not going to be able to experiment and find out what works best for you. Do it now as much as you possibly can. And hopefully that rings through to some of them, but uh, not very often, unfortunately. Great. <laughs> right. Different times. Yeah. Okay. Um, for this question's for both of you, drum compression then versus now. How has the approach changed for you? And this is from Alejandro Alvarez. Who wants to go first? You. Okay. <laughs> I never compress drums. The only drums so, I've ever compressed are Ringo's, and that's to mm -hmm. give a very specific sound. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, no, it's I, I don't compress them, limit them, do anything. The only compression that they will get is I will usually have a minuscule amount of bus compression on the final mix. Mm. And that's the only time drums will ever see a limiter or a compressor. Andrew? Well, um, <laughs> I'm known for destroying things. Um, I mean, though, when recording drums, I will usually have a couple of extra microphones, one of them being the talkback mic and one of them being some mono mic somewhere that I will crush for effect. The rest of the mics are untouched. They're EQ'd maybe, but it's a mic in the right place if you're lucky enough to have a good drummer with a good drum kit. So I think recording-wise, they're not too dissimilar other than I probably put up more mics than you and I like to have these extra ones just in case. Sure. Um, but mixing up until very recently, I had lots and lots and lots of parallel compressors that I would mix and match and use on drums to, to do stuff. But I'm actually, this album I'm mixing right now, I'm barely using any of it. And I'm actually, the, the what you described for your setup is I don't even have a bus compressor on there. There's a limiter at the end of the chain just to catch the peaks, but yeah. I've ended up pulling all the compressors out. And I am using a compressor on the overheads to get a little bit more excitement out of the cymbals just because they're they're rather dark and otherwise all I get is this ping off the ride yeah. all the way yeah. on kind of thing. But that's it. So, I mean, I'm known for compressing the hell out of everything, but I always do it parallel and I'm using less and less of it all the time. So who knows that? <laughs> but yeah, Maybe. yeah. Was that <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, so, what would you tell someone who's pursuing to get that Abbey Road EMI Beatles sound to go on? Um, that's from Joaquin Bischoff. So, what would you tell someone who's trying to get that kind of sound today? What is something? Use a use a red desk. Use a Fairchild 660 limiter, use an Altec, I can't remember what the, th the thing is that's modified by, by Abbey Road. Uh, mm -hmm. For the drums, slack, tea towels across every one of them, mm -hmm. Fairchild 660 across the, the drum kit, heavily compressed. Probably vocals would also be uh, Fairchild 660 over overused like mad it's a point of distortion uh that's it <laughs> yeah just go to abbey road and a lot of <laughs> no you couldn't even do it there these days right. british right. grove you might be able to because they have a red desk there <laughs> you're going to say something andrew oh i was just saying in a lot of u47s as well and 67s but yeah 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 and you got to get the beatles in front of the microphone i mean that's well, 
Yeah. <laughs> I think there is some there is something to take from that though, is you know, talking about Ringo's drum kit, how treated the drums themselves were and the way he played it, it's again, it's intentional for the song. It's not I'm gonna go out there and bash. It's no. how hard should I be playing the hi-hat on this song to balance the kit? How dead should the toms be? Because that way, with minimal microphones, you're picking up a picture of what's out there as opposed to yeah. having to well, the, the, the other interesting thing, I said much earlier that, we, that our EQ at that point was very limited. Uh, as an example, there are a number of tracks on the White Album. The, the Beatles went through this thing where they would come in when we're going to do a mix, and their first words were, put full bass and full treble on every track. <laughs> Pardon? Put full bass and full treble on every track. So that's what we did. We, we went to 10 both the, the highs and lows and they still sound okay with today's eq you couldn't do that but the the the, the amount the the type of eq and the amount there was on those red desks and just the way those red desks were it's amazing and look, there's plenty of documentation, which I'm sure is, you know, it's not all going to be 100% accurate, but I saw Jerry Hammock is in this chat here. He's written a few books about making those records, and there's also the Recording the Beatles book. So there's tons, tons of documentation, and you need to be you need to be a student of this stuff. You really do. You don't have to recreate it, but if there's a record you like 30 years ago, you couldn't find out anything about it. You would read the liner notes, which were better than they are now, yeah. but that was it. Now, there's going to be somebody on YouTube who is working on the record who will talk about it. There are books. You've got a book out. There, there's so much information. So you really need think, to go to a student. But it's, the, the problem is when it's correct information. Yeah. but it, even that, if it's, it's, You've got to be very, very careful about judging that kind of thing. And one of the things that drives me mad is the only way to get a good bass drum sound is you have to use this piece of gear. Yes. Well, bullshit. Don't if anyone got, don't believe it. It's the only way to get a good bass drum sound is to have a good bass drum. Yeah. And yeah. Drum, drum, it, John Bonham and Keith Moon playing it. Yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah. There is no. There's no definitive anything. But it's. It is easy to be a student of the history, even if it's slightly incorrect on details and things like that. And whether I mean, look. We don't even have to talk about the the plugins that are emulations of hardware and what we think about whatever. But the fact that you can play with a seven day or a thirty day demo with something that's kind of like the presence EQ that you were just talking about, mm -hmm. go play with it. Yeah. The red deck, it's been modeled, yeah. and whether or not it's, it's, it's quite good. Is, yeah, and so that'll give you the flavor of it, and that's the whole point. It's the flavor because you're going to have a different source anyway. So if you just want to get a feel for the workflow, also limit yourself to four tracks and go make a record. Oh, I, that's what I say. There Every student should start for the first three months. They should only work on four track. I got to work um, with Spoon lately, and one of my favorite things they've ever done is they did an EP called the Soft Effects EP, and the first song about that is uh, on that is called Mountain to Sound, and it's on four track, and it is fucking gigantic. It's one of the coolest sounding things that they've ever done. And they've done a lot of really cool sounding things. So as an exercise, it will make you make decisions and listen a lot harder than you will if you're just trying to capture stuff. Hmm. All right, anyway, sorry. Awesome. Next, next. 
Well, I have a question that's kind of along the lines of, um, of what we were talking about a second ago. Um, so this one's from Dot Rob, and he says, another question, is there a fretless guitar on the White Album? John had a fretless honer. There's proof in an interview where he plays the fretless guitar. This, we, we're talking about the guitar that was recently on Antiques Roadshow, which has been valued at a very, very high price. I happen <laughs> to know the guy that owns that. Oh. And no, there is not. It's not, to the best of my recollection, I have to throw that in. Uh, I, I seriously don't believe that there is a fretless guitar, six-string guitar, on the, on the White Album. But there are certainly pictures of George with, with that particular guitar around. And uh, there, there are other things going along with that. But I think the main track that it's been stated that it was probably used on was Helter Skelter. And what they think is the fretless on that is not. Definitely not. Awesome. Oh, uh, let's see here. Um, Can I just, well, I want to admit that in college, I actually pulled all the frets off of a PV guitar just to see what it would be like. And I'm not a good guitar, well, I'm not a guitar player at all, but that's not going to be in tune. That's <laughs> it, it, can, it has to be used very sparingly. Yeah. <laughs> one, but one, just very quickly on, on that, thinking back to Missing Persons, the, the bass player, Patrick O'Hearn, that was in, in the band, we were recording one of the tracks for the album, and initially we tried with a synth bass, Moog synth bass. It, it, it didn't feel quite right. So Pat then said, okay, let me try fretless. So he put fretless on it. Still didn't, it just wasn't quite doing it. So then someone, some brainiac came up with the idea, well, try playing the two tracks together, the synth and the fretless. I said, you've got to be kidding. That's never going to work. We played it and they were perfect. <laughs> that shows some musicianship. The did, he extra, did he get an extra 750 for doing that? <laughs> I think uh, session fees have gone up a bit since then. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, okay, this one's from Void Sloth. That's a great name. I hope that that's a band name. Uh, <laughs> any general tips or techniques for getting vintage type old school tones without having vintage gear? Just looking for ways to inspire vintage vibes aside from the instruments themselves. Thanks. I can't come up with anything. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, I think I, you, could, you could use high pass and low pass filters to just inspire you a little bit instead of trying to get a full picture, like make things mid-rangey and see what happens or, but yeah, I don't know. I, Cause I mean, like you were talking about before, you feel like you've been doing the exact same thing for 50 years. You weren't doing a vintage thing back then and you're doing a modern thing right now. You yeah. capture what you hear. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think most of us kind of feel that way. And sometimes I hear stuff that I did on a Mackie analog eight bus that, yeah. Holy shit! How did I do that? Yeah. And I'm sitting in front of a Neve. You know, mm. it's yeah. it's yeah. You, it's just your ears, I think, more than anything. But again, be a student. Go read some books about people making records back then, and try and yeah. set up something about that working environment that's the same. Yeah, uh, you mentioned towels on the drums. Sorry, 
Sorry, one of the other things along with that is not using many mics. Yeah. Mm. There was none of that back then. Yeah. No, I heard that, that Bonham used to get upset if there were, I mean, two mics was it, but when Glenn was using three, he's like, okay, but any more than three, he was not happy. Because yeah. you're messed with his performance. Interesting. Yeah. He's, it, there are two drummers I wish I'd worked with. He was one of them, and Gene Krupa was the other. But, well, uh, that's yeah. a good pair. Yeah, that's interesting good. pair. I've got to say, I, I, the drummers that I've worked with have all been so amazing. Yeah, you've worked with a couple. Oh, yeah. Couple. Yeah. <laughs> a couple or a hundred. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, so to that end, what's the number one factor that you find in a band that makes you want to go excitedly on board and work on? That, on them or that, with them that inner voice mm. that's that's it every time with the missing persons thing every when especially when i moved to the management side i was turning down production gigs to concentrate on managing the band and all of the people around me were saying you've got to be nuts you're insane none of no one got it except that inner voice until one day there was a, a small gig in la that they they played and both my my wife at the time uh my uh assistant at the time and my business manager at the time they were all there and that one gig they all came up to me and said you're right and it's it's going with that inner voice every time yeah. you should rent out your inner voice just give people yeah. advice <laughs> absolutely here waves is making a plug-in of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try, yeah try modeling it you'll have a hard time <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, how are you guys doing? What do you think? One more, a couple more? Let's, let's take it up to the two hour mark. Yeah, okay. Um, Seven minutes. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, if that's okay with you. Andrew. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yep. Awesome. Okay, um, so Bo Billstrup asks Can you mention that you wouldn't give in to the streaming? Uh, how do you see the future of how we get music and how to make it better? Um, and maybe uh, we could just change it around to like, where do you see the industry going? Or what do you think, you know, based on your experience and how you've seen it morph so many times, what do you think we're in for? As, as I said earlier, I, the way I see it is that there is eventually going to be an act that will come along that will change everything, much like the Beatles did. And it happened, I, I happened to watch a BBC documentary about Sinatra, uh, a four part documentary about him watching it yesterday and how he had to change when presley came along and how he hated presley and and how that affected music and then the same kind of thing when the beatles came along and i think the same thing's going to happen again it's just when it's going to happen i've no idea i doubt that it will be in my lifetime unfortunately but uh because i'd love to see what it is as far as how we need artists the big artists that unfortunately are making a lot of money from streaming we need them to stand up and be counted because the small acts aren't making a fucking penny or a couple of pennies out of streaming it's it is completely unfair and it, it's the rec, the major labels they do their separate deals with the streamers they get paid no matter yeah. what yeah and it's they could give two shits about what happens to the artists we, we've had uh, 
Taylor Swift stood up to be counted for a brief period in time, as far as I'm concerned, until she got a better deal, then suddenly she backed down. Adele, from what I understand, first three months of one of her albums, she wouldn't allow it to be streamed and it became the biggest selling album of the year. We need more big artists to do that kind of thing because it's not the way the record company say. People will buy product, they will buy uh, CDs, yeah, they will buy vinyl, if that's the only way they can get the music they want, and it, I, that's why I will not de I will not go on Spotify. I will not. I, I even I pay for Amazon Prime. I could get music through that, but I won't even go there just because I disagree with that whole way of, of doing business, and I won't be hypocritical enough to actually listen through a system that I don't agree with. Uh, so it's very hard for me to find good music these days. But <laughs> uh, so it's where where it will go. It, it, I I don't know. It, it, there are the two things that I I see. One that needs to happen, and we we also need to start teaching young kids from like three or four years old what music can and should sound like. Because all they're being taught is that music is supposed to sound the way it does with earbuds and, God forbid, beats and uh, through a computer. It's not, it, that, that's not the way music should be listened to. Uh, it, it, it's far more moving than that. We need to start teaching them at a very early age. No, you're not listening to music on that. So. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, when you're growing up and there are three radio stations and it's AM broadcast, yeah. that's mono and it's band limited, but it was also the exposure to the all of the great music of the time. Yes, yes. And so I think people listening outside their genre is really important. Um, curators are always important, and that's what radio is supposed to be, but it isn't. There, there are well, no independent radio anymore. No. So it's, yeah. it's difficult, but that, that is what it takes. It takes it takes music as art as opposed to music as commerce. Yeah. And separate is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, we're very much back at the commerce side of it, unfortunately. But uh, you can have both, as has been proved by many artists. You can yeah. have both. And the, the, the record companies have to sign for talent, not... Uh, for anything else and believe in that talent much like if you sign a band or an act and their first album doesn't sell then you do another one if you yeah. believe in them look if if bowie started now and had two flops yeah. he's done he's not self he wouldn't have two flops he'd only have one yeah only the one yeah. only the one and on that really depressing note i think <laughs> we've had two hours <laughs> Ken, thank you so much. That was awesome. Uh, so much that I didn't know, and it's uh, that's the work with Sid, Sid Barrett, going all the way back to that. I mean, just incredible, absolutely incredible. And, well, I could tell uh, you the story about the, the one session that I remember of working with him, but we don't have to, We'll have to do another one, and I can tell the story then. All right, all right, we'll do a part two. We'll do a part two. And start with Sid. You got it. All Andrew, right. thank, thank you so much, and and thank you for all you do for for our industry and uh, Pure Mix. What you're doing these days, it's great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ken. Yeah, yeah and I 
on behalf of everybody, I wanted to say thank you so much for doing this for us and and spending two hours of your day to come on and talk to us and, and all of that. And obviously, Andrew, as well, it's it's such an amazing thing for us to be able to, to talk with both of you uh, in this format and just, just epic. So thank you very much. Much appreciated. And thank you to all of the people out there that uh, have spent their two hours watching us. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Because otherwise, what's the point? No. Right. <laughs> It's great. Well, guys, yeah, thank you. That was so much fun. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow, everybody, in the chat room. Thank you for watching. And all right. All right. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Thanks, Ken. Well, there you have it. And two hours is definitely not enough. Uh, hopefully, we'll come back to Ken and fill up another two to 12 hours at some point. Thanks for listening. And make sure to check out episode five, where I talked to Simon Franklin. It will be fantastic. See you there.